Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to really sort of focus on the legacy of <coughs> John Terry. And really, th there's a couple of sort of key questions to start off with. I mean, you know, in terms of what does he stand for in regards to Chelsea and the, the Premier League as a whole? Now, I think with Chelsea... It, Chelsea fans is that he sort of was able to appeal to all Chelsea fans, you know, young, old. And I think one of his sort of important ones was not so necessarily the young Chelsea fans. I'm going to really focus on foreign fans and older fans. I think with to do with the older fans first. I think there's a sense. And I think this is a, among a certain generation of, of fans, and this applies to m most sort of big Premier League clubs, is that you know the sort of the, the seven, late seventies and eighties was a quite a difficult time to be a football fan. I don't think people quite remember that. You know that, that was sort of the era of fanzines when there was a sense that the police and government and wider society was sort of treating them badly. That you know they were being herded from the train to the away ground into pens like animals you know in poor crumbling stadiums with a sort of you know local police that would you know eye them suspiciously and you know the football wasn't particularly great the the pitches were bad you know there was violence and you know you had you know high saw and the ban from european football and just so many things going on that was negative and that was the sense you know declining attendance and any you know a number of the big clubs in trouble because they had built these big stands so the the east stand at chelsea the west stand there's a stand at wolves all built around and they didn't you know they they looked out of place with regards to the rest of these sort of edwardian and victorian era sort of grounds <laughs> and they sort of nearly bankrupted a couple of the clubs and there was just so much you know negativity and so for those fans to have then sort of lived through that and then you know the the Taylor report when the stadiums got nicer and the you had sort of the rise of the Premier League and for some you know for a lot of the bigger clubs so let's say you're talking about Chelsea and Man U then the nineties you know probably early nineties obviously for United and the late nineties for Chelsea was a great time finally these teams were back where you know at least for Man United where they believe they belong and Chelsea to this sort of bright sunny upland future you know with players like Zola and Hullet and Viali just great names at the bridge the development of the ground the fact that they you know finally sorted out the ownership of the ground and they start to spend some money Hoddle comes in they start going to cup finals and they start winning and they're going to the sort of top and it would be great you'd feel like you've been on this long adventure from you know the late 60s and 70s where things were doing really well to the 70s 80s where things were bad when there was the, the con not only was the overall football you know scene have some negatives or to be considered a football fan was seen to be negative bit of a yobbo you know the sort of you know Margaret Thatcher being anti football fans and your club then to be in a bad state and then for everything to sort of turn around it was fantastic but the, i think the problem was is that they you would naturally feel that you were part of the 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 actually you were part of the fabric of the club and it was a journey that you'd both taken that you know as a fan and as a club together and then suddenly things started to change when things started to go really well i think this is where a lot of the issues come from especially you know my own personal experience and you know people i know is that if you were a season ticket holder 
you just basically, if you kept on paying your money, you know, you were there and there was a certain amount of security whereby I think a certain generation of fans who just had that awkward decision, let's say, yeah, depending on where you were in your life, maybe you didn't live close enough or whatever, and you didn't have a season ticket. So you'd spent years spending, you know, hundreds of games and all the rest of it, but then suddenly you get to a culture where it's like, well, okay, you know, it's season ticket members and the prices start to go up and the tickets become more scarce and then suddenly you're actually somewhat isolated. In other words, you're not able to get to all of the games that you want to. You're only having to scrabble tickets here and there. It might be a midweek game or a midweek Champions League game against someone pony. And <clears throat> it suddenly became very difficult. You were sort of shut out, despite the fact you've given so much. And now suddenly you've got, you know, tourists, you know, sort of middle-class fans that have seemingly come out of the woodwork. And, you know, in a sense, you know, and... And that's for you know that's a certain amount of people, and they became a bit alienated. But you know, someone like a John Terry was at least a link to that old Chelsea which they were a part of, and so, and I think to an extent also a sort of a fringe element, you know, the the sort of sense that you know they were being you know excluded, you know, because you know, let's face it, every club, major club, has a hardcore fringe of people, and. The way how things are trending, you know, with you know, CCTV and you know, banning orders, those people were sort of being pushed out. But for them, someone like a John Terry, the implication was like if he wasn't good enough to be playing for us, he'd be on the bus going to Stoke away with the rest of us. He'd be on the train or, you know, and, you know, and the sense that some of their own opinions of what Chelsea is, you know, like headhunters and all the rest of it, is that they thought like, well, he, he would be one of us. Whether that's true or not, you can't really you can't really tell. But you know, obviously the the controversies and you know, he became in a way a sort of a poster child for a Chelsea that was changing and that was leaving them out of it. And that's more for the you know the hardline element. I think for maybe the more you know the alienated and isolated type, you know, just having him there was at least some kind of link to the Chelsea that they knew. It's not that they want to go back to you know being in Division Two or the stadium issues or anything like that, but it's where they were. He's a, a sort of a link to that, where you were a part of the club because as long as JT was there, even if you're not going every week, even if you do feel a bit left out, there's still some kind of link to that time when you did feel part of it, and that and I'll go into that and and on sort of later on in the podcast. I think the other side of it is something like. Um, the, the importance of someone like John Terry to foreign fans. I think if you were to... Let's face it, right? In the last few weeks, you've had Totti retiring from Roma and you've had John Terry retiring from Chelsea. Now, both of them have won, you know, had fantastic careers and achieved wonder... I mean, hero worship by the fans. And yet, I think what you have to consider is, is that... Chelsea have a huge amount more Asian fans and foreign fans than someone like Roma. Now, of course, there's elements of, you know, the Premier League is shown more around the world. Any number of different, you know, obvious factors. You know, English in comparison with, you know, how often it's spoken in the outside world in comparison with something like Italian. And, yeah, there are obvious kind of you know, reasons for that marketing and all the rest of it. But there is something to it that's a little bit deeper. So if you think about it, if you, let's say you were to 
be foreign, yeah, live in a different country and support Roma. Now, there's, there's a lot of different context to it. In other words, you know, for someone like Totti, he, he's admitted there's almost part of him that's incredibly proud and happy to have spent his whole career, <coughs> whole main career at Roma. I mean, if he's going to play somewhere else, it'd probably be in Australia or in America, and it won't quite be the same principle as, you know, the actual bulk of his career from when he was a kid to when he's, you know, early 40s. But there's also that sadness of that he was, you know, never able to, you know, go somewhere else and see what the Premier League was right, or Germany or Spain, any number of different things that he could have done or possibly won. Because in the end, by staying at Roma, he's sort of sacrificed an amount of success that he probably would have got somewhere else. And there's a reason why that is. And the same sense happens to sort of Daniele De Rossi, who's in a similar boat. He's just signed a new two-year contract. But is that there's a pressure to leave, not to leave. Because you've got the North versus the South, so you've got the industrial, sort of wealthy, power, politically powerful North, you know, with AC, Inter, you know, Juventus, those sort of monolith clubs that have always won more, whereby you've always that you're really left with, sort of, when you go into the sort of more deindustrialized, more agricultural South, is that all you really have is you have Roma and Lazio, and to an extent, Na- Napoli in Naples. And so there's that thing. So in other words, the idea of, you know, for those players who play in Rome, and to an extent, Naples, in your homegrown, moving up north, is seen as a negative thing. In other words, it's just, it's something to do with Italian culture. In other words, a lot of people from the south have moved up to the north for jobs and all the rest of it. And there's an element of sort of sadness and melancholy around it. And the North will always win and the North will always seemingly have its political power. And there's always that, there's a, you know, a fringe element. You know, not, actually probably a little bit more than a fringe element, but there's a sense that actually one day the North could just, you know, cut the country in half and go its own way with its own money and leave the South, you know, to economic ruin. So there's that kind of element to it. Like, say, if you look at the element between Lazio and Roma, general Lazio fans tend to be a bit more right-wing in terms of their ultras, and Roma tend to be a bit more left-wing. So there's all, all of these very specific Italian political issues that have seeped into its football, which makes it, for an outsider, a lot more harder to understand. classic example is um, Alessandro Nesta. Yeah, he starts his career... At Lazio, <coughs> who was a fan, his dad was a member, whole family was. Anyway, he's about, I think, seven or eight, nine, just getting into, you know, signing like a something, you know, training contract. with, And Roma offer him a contract. The dad refuses to sign, literally takes the kid, takes him straight to Lazio and says, look, you have to sign this kid. You know, we're not going, you're not going to play for, you know, Roma. I'm not having it. Okay, and the thing is, it eventually works. It does. I mean, Lazio signing me has a fantastic career, and eventually does, you know, end up moving north. But the point is, is that you can't imagine that really somewhere else, not not in England, or you know, with that kind of sort of passion. And even if it was almost self defeating, and always if they had turned him down, what would have happened then? Would you know, any number of different sort of issues, which makes it that if you then think of the Premier League, really, it's actually a non-political league. If you look at all the other sort of major European leagues, what you know, if you look at Spain, you've got Real Barça. 
But that's the context between Catalonian nationalism and you know, Franco and his relationship with Real Madrid and the, sort of dif- the power differentials between you know, Madrid, Barcelona, between the idea of people who want Spain to be centralised and you know, one nationality and the sort of flip side of it of you know, people who want it to be far more fragmented and more you know, your own personal region. Which you know, and the the role of Barcelona as a as a beacon in very hard times, as a way of basically allowing for Catalonian nationalism, the Catalan national anthem, to speak in Catalan, whereby you know the sort of centrists and the right wing were always you know trying to get one form of Spanish spoken across the whole country. So he's got that element to it, you know, Rangers and Celtic. You've got the sectarian divide. You can't discuss Rangers and Celtic without discussing that. You know, even something like PSG in Marseille, you've got PSG, sort of the, who almost speaks to the sort of, the up, <coughs> excuse me, upper echelons of France, whereby, you know, most, you know, they're the overwhelmingly biggest supported club across the whole country. But you've then got Marseille, who are very, you know, who sort of, Arguing against that, you know, the, the, the importance of Paris to overall French life and, you know, their own, you know, the, the culture of the, the south of France and all the rest of it. And there's that aspect to it. You've got the aspect of Bayern as an example of barbarian power and the importance of, you know, and how that, you know, has an implication for, like, German history. In other words, the, you know, Bavaria being sort of the, the, you know, part of the the vanguard for, you know, German nationalism. It's that kind of element to it. Whereby the Premier League isn't. It's like, if who would you say is the most mm, political club? Uh, you'd probably say Liverpool in the sense that, you know, and the sort of struggles they've had with, you know, the government and Thatcherism in, in the 80s. But even that, a huge amount of people who, you know, have some, you know, links or love for Liverpool... You know, that could have easily, you know, a lot of that comes from the music of the 50s and 60s and 70s and the success of Liverpool, you know, up until the 80s. So, in other words, there was a, a following for Liverpool before any sort of kind of impact of Thatcherism could really be felt. And it is still important. And again, I think I've discussed that in a slightly different part of the podcast. But the point is, is that you could easily support Liverpool without that. Poli- you know, without that political element, you just like the history. You like the players. You like the the Liverpool culture, the the architect. Yeah, you know, the the music. Any number of different reasons. And by supporting Liverpool, you would then take on. You know, obviously the, you know, the, the there's the, that political element. But even then, you know, in terms of you know wanting justice for the ninety six, that's you know perfectly understandable, and it is important. But then even if you think about it, even in the sort of eighties. When you get the you know Everton and Liverpool battling each other out for leagues and cups, you have the sort of cup final between Liverpool and Everton, and it's not a, it's n- the atmosphere and the way how it's been sort of cast into cultural history. It's not like an Arsenal Spurs, which would be a battle. It would be two you know two tribes going to war. That kind of element. It's more about, you know, everyone's just happy to be there. It's a sign of, you know, it's a bit as if everyone, it's a, it's going down to London and almost a, a massive party to celebrate anti-Thatcherism in that re- regards. So, yeah, they both want to win. No one wants to lose. But, you know, there, there's a camaraderie between Liverpool and Everton to a certain extent that doesn't 
exist in any of the other rivalries that I've, you know, met pre-existing, I've just mentioned as such. So it's not really applicable. So in other words, if you, and this is where, you know, I think reading an article about how and why sort of someone like Chelsea and John Terry is phenomenally popular out in parts of Asia is that they just love the storyline aspect of what he does. He's someone who's just gone through the youth system, who's ascended to the captaincy, who's led them to this sort of long, glorious success. It, it just, it, it works in a much more straightforward way than dealing with someone like Totti's legacy at Roma, which is far more along that. Well, he's staying because, you know, he has this connection with the people, but it's it, Italy-specific. You have to sort of be Roman to some extent, or at least have a really good understanding of the history of Rome to really fully grasp it, whereby it's a lot more straightforward to say, okay, supported the, cl- bo- the club as a boy, came up, led them to glory, and even the complication bit, even the sort of scandals, that then just adds to the, the, the mix that he's in some way, shape or form, you know, a conflicted hero. In other words, there is the element of anti-hero about him. And, you know, the the ways how, you know, the Premier League is successful is that there's, there, you can get an, an affinity to Manchester in terms of, you know, the music, the culture, the movies, you know, that you, and then, you know, how, you know, the role of City... The role of United, Georgie Best, you know, Charlton, Law, the 68. You know, it's it's quite easy to get into. Or you can go and say Liverpool or the, all the London clubs and the sort of the glamour of the King's Road, you know, uh, the Arsenal, Spurs, that kind of thing. It is quite easy and it's non-political. In other words, it doesn't really matter who you, who you tick on, you know, Thursday in terms of the election... That doesn't. That won't. That won't lead you to support someone more than anybody else, and that I think plays makes it a lot easier for people to just support a Premier League team without having to possibly deal with some of the the issues that you you have in the other European leagues to an extent, and that's where sort of John Terry and the sort of the choreography of his story works. And the way how you know, all the other bits and pieces then fit into that, uh, but then that's interesting then to sit there and say, well, actually, he can link. You know, in other words, someone like John Terry can link a huge, you know, millions of people in Asia who support Chelsea, and millions of, you know, and thousands of people who are the sort of people locked out, the people who are just hanging on to their season ticket, who have, who can't go, who have to watch it in pubs in you know the less salubrious parts of you know West London. They're both linked, and they both love John Terry, even if they are they completely divert. They're completely opposites in terms of outlook and all the rest of it, which are then I think then sort of neatly leads onto that kind of middle ground, sort of new Chelsea. So in other words, people who may have been you know maybe a couple of generations ago, sort of a casual football fan, someone who might have just you know, if you if their team was in the cup final, they just watch that there or catch the odd game at the pub. It's that kind of. Or go to the odd game. You know, or the, oh, yeah, there's a cup final. Oh, you know, we're playing, brilliant, I'll get a ticket. Those sort of fans who probably since you know, the 90s and Taylor, the Taylor Report, any num- and their rise to the Premier League, is the middle classification of football to an extent, or the Premier League, and, you know, it's the big clubs. And it's always funny is that, really, where John Terry appeals to that kind of blood and thunder, old-school Chelsea, you know, ethos... <laughs> 
And yet, someone like Lampard ends up actually, ironically enough, being a better example of what the present-day Sanford Bridge crowd, you know, Lampard was well-educated, middle-class, you know, you know, there's a highbrow aesthetic to the way how he would play and how people wrote and talked about him. You know, and he was basically a personification of what the Stamford Bridge crowd is like and is, you know, in a sense, going to be to an extent. And, you know, the fact that you know, because he became essentially a global player, in other words, he would be known all around the world, whereby sort of John Terry, the sort of old of importance to the older fans, is of, you know, Ron Harris, you know, that, that, you know, the old school Chelsea, you know, where the pitches, you know, you had the shed being the shed, not just the, the shed end as it is now, you had the shed. And, and he appeals to that kind of, he's a link to that past whereby Lampard was never, he just came round in, you know, what, end of 2001, you know, just before the sort of Abramovich takeover, but he was, you know, then becomes a key force figure in that. So, I think one of the interesting things is, um, I and this is speaking almost from a personal level, it's like, I've always been a bit curious why sort of John Terry hated Spurs. And I think when you actually really think about it, th there's actually a really good reason why he would hate Spurs, I think more than anything else. Is that obviously there wasn't really a natural rival in Fulham, they're just... Fulham just don't compete with Chelsea on any level, and they're not really a threat. And with Arsenal, you know, under you know, Chelsea, have had a lot more success. Yeah, he loses the first cup final to them, yeah, the Ray Parler wonder goal. But from then on, you know, Arsenal go on this long run. Yeah, the rise of Chelsea basically inhibits Arsenal winning things under Wenger. They have this sort of long nine-year stretch of them winning thing. They then start winning FA Cups, during which they've won the Champions League, the European Cup. And so it, he always see you know in effect and you know not losing to them under Mourinho it has you know that kind of I think it probably would change his perception of them. In other words, Arsenal was someone who he could overcome. Whereby Spurs, yes, Chelsea end up winning much more. But <coughs> excuse me again. The subtle difference is, is that Spurs showed his weaknesses probably more than anybody else. You know, it's, you know, the discipline. He got sent off a few times against Spurs, especially at White Hart Lane. You know, there's a couple of games where his lack of pace got sort of horribly exposed. You know, he, you know they, they, there's always been three or four, you know, maybe four or five games where Chelsea have lost, you know, the Carling Cup final. You know, there's a couple of times they, you know, the 5-3 the result. And it's really what it was is that he wasn't unable to stop damaging results there, there was a year when they were going for the title and they came down to us and they were 3-1 up and then 4-2 up and we came back to draw 4 and in the last minute Carlo Cudicini makes a wonder save from Berbatov to stop it being 5-4 so in the end he he his his inability to stem that and the fact that the, the, the White Hart Lane crowd would never let him forget his sort of personal foibles and you know the, the issues that he's had in his personal life and so, and really what that sort of, you know, and that's one of the things that his sort of interest in sort of choreography is that if he's unable to shape the narrative, it's something that's really damaging. In other words, so much of what John Terry's been 
built on is you know the his conception of, of how to defend or how to lead in other words he doesn't really say much in other words for someone who's been so famous and been in such an important part of British football and the Premier League for so many years and one of the biggest clubs and yet you know too much about John Terry. You know when he goes out on a night out, when something bad happens, when he said something, when you know all of his personal life has just been. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a horrible cough. I apologise on that one. But we've seen every single misstep, every single scandal, the issues with his wider family, you know, and yet you don't really know him. All you you know is what he sort of does on a football field. So in other words, the, the goals, you know, the, the, his conception of how to defend, it's very British. In other words, one of the, if you, the best person to always compare him against is Rio. And the, the difference is, is that Terry scores goals. He's, all, he's ended up you know, being the highest scoring defender in Premier League history. It's a, it's a number that will probably be take an awful lot. It'd have to be a very inch, you know, you'd have to have a defender that could score a load of free kicks, a load of penalties, and still chip in with other goals, but do it every single year. Which is unlikely. It's doable, but you'd have to be a hell of a player to get close to that, unless you were to change what defender is, the actual, you know, the role, unless you could somehow create sort of a Beckenbar role and then still score 10, 8 to 10 goals a season. And yet Rio never did. And in some ways it shows the sort of the strength and in some ways the, the weakness of Terry is that Rio had just an abundance of ability. And so the way how people talked about Rio was always, you know, <coughs> hardly work no, working hard or hardly working. So some people say, oh, he's really because he is so good, because he does everything so well at such a high level, he's working hard. Where you'd have the flip side of it, where people say, well, he doesn't look like he's trying, he doesn't look like he's doing enough. For his talent, he's actually underperforming. He's just, you know, cruising through games. You know, he never scored that many goals. But the way how John Terry and his, I suppose, inbuilt fascination with Corey, in other words, you can just, you can close your eyes now and you can picture a John Terry goal. It's always got the same kind of aesthetic to it. It's always a corner. It always seems to be an important moment in the game. He just seems to always run in on a slight angle. The header's always powerful. And you know, and then he's basically and then he's just got that kind of he runs up to the crowd and celebrates in the same way. It's just you can picture it. Much in the same way that you know the, the other side of it is that you can always picture when you know the striker's gone round the goalkeeper, he's you know, the ball's going in you know that you know Chelsea have now and then he sort of comes out of nowhere sprinting having never given up the play and then makes some kind of you know the miraculous block off the line and that keeps the, the the point or the win for Chelsea and it's that sort of level of he he almost as if he has an in, a intuitive understanding of the importance of actions in shaping the narrative you know in other words he knows how to appeal to the the wider audience in a way that basically doesn't mean that he doesn't really have to say anything, and that has that has two you know that has a positive and a negative sort of connotation to it. In other words, 
think think of the the Moscow penalty as a case study, and I think this is the thing. If you if you sort of watch it again, and the, his sort of <coughs> actions are up until taking that penalty, you know, he he's adjusting the armband, he's making sure the socks are in a sort of perfect position, you know. And you can you it's almost as if he can hear the commentator, you know. He's been a Chelsea fan his whole life. He's grown up with the club. This is the moment, you know, he's about, you know, if he scores this penalty, he's going to you know, be the first London team to win a, a European Cup. The first Chelsea captain to lift the European Cup against Man United. You know, in a penalty shootout, you know, a sort of sudden death penalty shootout situation. You couldn't dream it. But that's the problem, really. It, it's mistaking happenstance for destiny. After the fact, if he scores, brilliant. You can call it destiny. That's what the writers are for. But in effect, he's almost sitting there thinking, this has to be perfect. In a way, I don't think anybody else would be that bothered. You just think, I just need to score this penalty. And this, I mean, the classic example for what the sort of aesthetics and the choreography are is, there's a great story about the uh, baseball Baseball commentator, Vin Scully, he basically was the, the Dodgers play-by-play guy for the best part of about 55 years. He only just retired back in the last season. So he's in the box, commentary box, at Atlanta for Hank Aaron's 715th home run. Not to go into any detail, basically, Babe Ruth hit 715 home runs, American icon. People thought they'd ne- no one ever hit more than 714. Hank Aaron is African-American, long career, and he's tied Babe Ruth at 7.14. He's going for 7.15. It's been a while. There's been a whole heap of stress around it in that Atlanta wanted him to do it at home, so they'd sell a load of tickets. Major League Baseball said you can't just bench him while you're away because that's just you know, competitive balance. So it's finally come down to this. It's, I think, one of the last home games on their homestand. They're about to go away again. At which point he'll probably do it somewhere else, and they'll lose that moment. So, and he's been under huge pressure. You know, there's been death rats, racism, just any number of horrible sort of nineteen seventies things. And he goes up to the plate and he hits this home run. So it's, it's I believe it might have been nationally televised. So there's three, four different commentators on the radio and on TV covering this game. Now, Vin Sully sees the home run, and any other commentator would just go, "Oh my God!" You, you, because you'd have planned it in your head at some point. You'd have thought about what you're going to say. Because how could you not come? This is going to be something that will be is history. He just says nothing. He walks to the back of the box, pours himself out a coffee, has a couple of sips, you know, composes himself, goes back down, sits, and then does this beautiful call. And it's amazing. So he's basically let for the first 10, 15 seconds of the, the moment, he's just let the crowd noise. Because every it's just exploded. It's just gone into absolute... Bedlam, pandemonium, you know, it's just 50,000 odd people knowing that they've just been part of history. And this is sort of where John Terry sort of comes in is that he's a participant, he's not the commentator. You know, that's what you, he's not, he's not actually at this point fully focused on the schematic, which is, you know, you score the pen, you don't score the moment. But for him, he's almost thinking, I have to, you know, I want my, I don't want my 
my armband to be slightly askew because then that the photo wouldn't look so great and it wouldn't look as I don't know captainy or whatever you know reason behind it. And so as <coughs> so as a result, and the thing is, you think about it, it's a wet pitch. You know, it's not the surface that you can really take your eye off for a second. You've been playing for 120 minutes. You know, th- there's a lot of things that could go wrong, especially when it is in that sort of rain. And it's not, you know, and so that's where it, it's sort of, that's one of the, the elements where, you know, it made him great in the sense that his goal scoring was a huge part of his career. But at the same time, that kind of aesthetic and choreography and obsession about, you know, the moment and how he would impact the moment was negative. In a way, if you think about it, like England teams and penalties, they, they lose the moment. They do, and then they miss the penalty. You know, if they just learn that actually the penalty itself is all that matters, the schematic, the actual process of you walk up there, you have your run-up, you pick your spot. What they lose is the moment because they just start thinking of 1996, 98, you know, 2004, 2006. And even at, even at youth level, oh, it's England and Penelope, they're never going to win. And, and you know, the, 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 the obsession with you know, sort of Gareth Southgate, um, Waddle, Pierce, and all of the rest of it, it seeped into our, into our culture, which is... And I suppose this is where it sort of leads into the, his the England captaincy and the sort of controversy surrounding that. Because really, what you've got is you've got, you know, in any English conception of captaincy and sort of management to an extent, or at least uh, two people exhibiting those roles. It's you know Moore and Ramsey. In other words, Ramsey basically says, you know, I trusted you know Bobby Moore to be my tactician on the field, my tactical brain. Because I can't do anything from the bench because I don't, you know, he doesn't have subs. You know, he only has 15 minutes at half time. He doesn't have the ability to to mould things whereby Moore does. And he trusts Moore to basically be his eyes, ears, tactical brain and mouth on the pitch. And to reorganise things where he sees fit, working within the sort of Alf Ramsey framework. And it works. And, and, but it doesn't work with Terry. I mean, yes, you could argue that in comparison, you know, he had some you know, poor and uninspiring coaches. Yes, but he wasn't in his leadership, wasn't able to counteract that or create a winning or a collective ethos. You know, if you want to look at a collective ethos, it's Greece. They're not brilliant, but they work within the system. Or, you know, Beckenbauer, maybe the 72 World Cup, the manager has a nervous breakdown. Reality is basically Beckenbauer takes over. Yeah, so they've got them, you know, the coach sits on the sideline and looks like the manager, but really the person that's running the ship is Beckenbauer. But Terry doesn't have that. And it's actually a, an interesting sideline of England captaincy, is that there's a, we all seem to have a cultural idea of what we want an England captain to look like. And for the most part, it's, you know, a big, tall, strapping defender, you know, Wears the armband with pride, you know, English through and through, you know, leads from the back, sings the national anthem loudest, that sort of <clears throat> conception of it. And yet, in comparison with, you know, other English national teams, our captains don't seem to be particularly, they seem to only have one sort of <sighs> default template. It's 
lead from the front. So in other words, you know, it's Brian Robson scoring after like 15, 12 seconds, 10, 10, 11 seconds against France in, I think, the... I want to say 82 World Cup, but it might be 84, Euro 84. doesn't matter, detail. But it's that, it's the tournament starts, and in 10 seconds he's gone up, headed it in, happy days, England are leading. And it's a bit like that with, with Terry, it's like, he didn't seem to score goals at major international tournaments. And once you sort of took that away, and, you know, the, and by being at Chelsea, one of his great statements, I think, comes out when he <coughs> sort of kicks off one of the tournaments, like, and he has a, you know, publicly has a bit of a, bit of a go. And, and he says, well, this is what we do at Chelsea. But in effect, at Chelsea, at that level, his goals, his leadership, it's pretty much lead by example and lead by, you know, by succeeding. You know, because you've got the Abramovich money, which basically plugs up the hole. So you, you end up with great managers. You end up with great teammates. Whereby at England, you don't, you don't get that. And in other words, at England level, you've got this talent, but you know the coaches aren't going to don't have the ability to mould it and to do enough on your own. In other words, there is this vacuum, power vacuum, that someone you know that you think Terry would be the ideal person to to do it, to bring everyone together, to get everyone on the same hymn sheet, to organise something on the pitch in a way that would make the sort of tactical limitations. In other words, your you know. Sven, you're an Ericsson. Oh, you can have any shape of midfield you want as long as it's four players. Oh, we'll do a diamond. We'll do a flat four. We'll do you know, wingers pushed up. Oh, well, we'll always have a defence in midfield and that, you know, it will either, you know, we'll play Carragher there. We'll play King there. We'll play anyone but Gareth Barry and Parker. It's that kind of... But that's an issue that... You know, would seemingly affect Greece as well. They don't seem to have, you know, they don't have the players. They only really have one system, and they're able, and the captain, and the way how it's run, and the, the team seem to find a way to harness that, knowing that they've only got one shot at this, and that they've only got one system and one style of playing. So, they, it has to, you know, there has to be an element of luck, whereby Terry doesn't, and the senior players don't. In other words, they, they never seem to be a especially the gold the you know the golden generation. I I describe them as basically a whole generation of players, all trying to win their own personal build your own adventure World Cup. So they're all trying to you know cre you know and this is this is specific you know especially Rooney and you know Lampard at the two thousand six World Cup. In other words, he's like. Well, the, the way how I think I'm going to win the World Cup with England is if, I, if I'm, like, player of the tournament, I score a load of goals. So he just keeps on shooting. And yet the more shots he takes, the more desperation, the more that the stat count picks up, the more that it's obvious, you know, and the more that teams start backing off, saying, well, I don't think he's going to score this. And he goes from further and further out, and he becomes less and less successful. And he puts more pressure on the rest of the midfield. And so suddenly, it, all of them, none of them have actually sat there and have got on the same hymn sheet. And that's something that really, you know, Terry's supposed, this is what his calling card's supposed to be. You know, he's supposed to be able to do this. But in the end, he ends up being divisive. In fact, because of his personal foibles, he ends up, an England manager leaves because of him. And that's not necessarily all his own fault. I think Fabio Capello, you know, the second it got political in this country... He didn't know. He didn't want to know. He didn't care. He wasn't that engaged. <laughs> you know, with you know, he want he he liked the money, and he I think he liked the 
lifestyle that being an international manager gave, but I don't think he was actually that interested in getting to the nuts and bolts of, you know, the, you know, the complicated relationship we have with race in this country, whereby if you compare it to something like Italy, where it is, a, you know, even now, even several years after he's left England, you've still got major issues at institutional level in terms of, oh, we don't have racism here. Well, you know, the players walking off the field due to racist abuse seems to suggest you do. And the reaction of, instead of, you know, banning the clubs or trying to stop them or trying to increase fines and points things, is they actually end up suspending the player and booking the player and punishing the player for bringing to attention to the world what is actually a major issue. And so that it, it's almost, it's not a surprise that he ends up going to a, a you know, his next managerial job is Russia, where basically this isn't going to be an issue and you know, he can just essentially manage and that's it. And there's, you know, there's not going to be a political angle to it. I mean, you can, you can, there are other England captains. I mean, in terms of someone like Tony Adams, he, he did a good, he was a decent leader, decent captain. But in the end, under his watch, Beckham, you know, gets sent off in 98. You know, there's a lip, you know, there isn't, you know, he isn't able to inspire, you know, you know, you have the whole thing with Gareth Southgate volunteers to take the penalty when it probably shouldn't have been Gareth Southgate taking the sixth penalty. He was probably, you know, not the person and someone possibly should have, you know, and that, you could blame the manager as well, any number of different factors. I mean, obviously you have to focus on, you know, Paul Ince, you know, saying I don't want to take one, but, you know, it's that kind of way that there never seems to have been an England captain at football level that has that kind of nous, or the, I suppose the emotional IQ to to sum to sum up the situation and to work some and to get the best out of people. So in other words, Adams doesn't seem to be able to find a a, a fifth, sixth, you know, sorry, a sixth, seventh, eighth penalty taker. It, it comes down to who volunteers, and you know Southgate being a man of duty volunteers, but he's missed two penalties in his career. He's not the person that should be taking this penalty. But no one had, presumably no one had looked up his numbers and nobody else was going to, you know, say yes. So he hasn't been able to persuade anyone to take that six penalty. He wasn't able to persuade Incy to take it, who was a senior player who should have probably taken that sort of penalty. But it's that kind of thing. Which then I think really leads you to the sort of two sides of the JT. So we've, we've discussed the positives, that the hard work, you know, the... The desire to be great, you know, to to do, to to find, to to basically appeal to what English people want from a defender in terms of the leadership, the tackling, even some of the passing, you know, and you know, the leading, for example, and you know, the pride of being captain, which is something that is important, but nowhere near as important or lionised or you know sort of fetishized as much on the continent as it is here. So, but then, and so that's the positive, that's why you can see Chelsea fans just appreciating him as a football player. But then that leads to sort of the dark side. You know, in other words, it, it's someone who's a who's genius, I'm understanding choreography, and he also understands the appeal, and he understands that the crowd will eat it up. They will eat up the fact that he is Chelsea through and through. And it, it's not a personality cult, but it's a cult of personality. Because he understands you know, his unique place in the sort of Chelsea history. And you know, that nobody else could possibly ever replicate. So, but he sort of, 
there's no second level to it. In other words, he understands the power that he has, but like any sort of, you know, where he's able to get that popularism, where seemingly you know, 99% of Chelsea fans are pro-JT. But he sort of uses that for his own advantage. So he uses that in terms of the, the Man City thing, where he you know, hints about leaving and uses that, you know, and that popular, you know, the anger that and the frustration that would go at the ownership if they let him go to <clears throat> Man City to use that to basically you know get a pay rise when he's already massively well paid. I mean, this is the whole thing, is that the choreography leads him to being a great defender and making the most of his talents because you're limited. He's not the tallest, you know, he's not the fastest, but also the flip side of it is is that he's aware that it's an overvalued talent in this country. And he knows that he will be absolutely loved, especially by Chelsea fans, in a way that he's probably not going to be quite as loved elsewhere. So in the end, you know, if he, you know, if he was, let's say, unassuming or just was a personality type that just went to work and did his job, sort of, you know, like a Cesar Aspilicueta, you know, maybe he lacks. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say Cesar Aspilicueta lacks personality, but someone who's just unassuming very calm, very much, just does his job and does it at a really high level. Still cares and still very passionate, but just in an understated way. It wouldn't be quite the the same. It, you'd just be doing that because it's the right thing to do. Terry does it because, yes, it gets him the career, the money and the glory and all the rest of it. And he knows he'll get a lot of credit for doing so. But if he really was that kind of, you know, the sort of George Washington, you know, I cannot tell a lie... Well, then, you know, his actions in terms of, you know, all the controversy that's surrounding him. So, in other words, what he's done is he, he's ended up in a situation where he's taken all of the plaudits from Chelsea for this, you know, captain leader legend. But at the same time, he's not upheld up his side of the bargain in terms of, you know, behaving like the captain, the leader and all the rest of it. <laughs> in other words, he actually ends up with a very colourful and somewhat, you know, the perception of being very selfish, in other words, the Wayne Bridge, any number of different actions and behave, public behaviour that you would know that he would be aware that if he's caught, he will get in trouble. And, you know, and the, 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 the <coughs> and the damage that it could do to Chelsea and all the rest of it in terms of, you know, the times when, you know, the player power was there and they get, you know, because of the relationship they have with Roman and sort of, you know, and that's, uh, this, you know, maybe the first five, ten years, well, I'd say the first five to seven years of Roman when he's quite trigger happy and he's still you know, learning the sort of the ropes of being an owner and he, basically that, that gets, the manager loses power, you know, once, you know, in the sort of the, year, the, the post-Mourinho years. So, I think, I think where, where the, this then goes is, is that, and this is why his England career ends in, in a way, in such a sort of, almost, it has a sort of tragic element to it. In other words, for someone who so desperately wanted to be England captain and to, to almost be the you know, the next Bobby Moore in terms of being the one that leads England to, <clears throat> that leads England to, England to glory but in the end it ends in this just sort of horrible you know, it basically ends in a courtroom and what, what this leads to is is that so we've discussed why Chelsea fans would love that 
the good side, the choreography and all the rest of it. You can understand why they love it. But why do they forgive the dark side? And the way I'm going to answer this question is to, to look at... Chelsea, as a fan base and as a football club, it, it's somewhat... It, it, he basically is able to divide... You know, unite a divided house. So he's able to, you know, d to unite foreign fans, English fans, new fans. You know, the fans who've grown up with only Chelsea being successful and only John Terry leading them. You know, like a load of Chelsea, younger Chelsea fans. You know, last season was just, not the season before, when they just <coughs> excuse me, completely bomb out of the league. This is the first time that someone who is, you know, 16, 17, 18 is ever going to have seen a mid-table Chelsea team. It's, for them, it's just a shock horror, whereby for an older fan, it's like, well, that was the 1980s. You know, you'd have given anything to be mid-table, you know, at a certain point, mid-table in the Division 1 in the 1980s, that kind of principle. And, you know, rich, poor, young, old, you know. And they're two different factors to that. It's, football fans love being able to always doubly love something if everybody else hates it. And also the way that, you know, the sort of the public perception of Terry. It was a, a fantastic way because in the end, he becomes a lightning rod and it takes a lot of the heat away from the, the Roman Abramovich money. The fact that he's put in billions. And that's, you know, been a progenitor for a lot of the Chelsea's success. But th this is the thing. And also what Terry, because he's unique in the sense that Lampard is... 2001 so he's just before Abramovich but he was developed at West Ham so you know he's you know if Roman Abramovich had made that you know had bought them one year earlier he'd have been one of the you know like the first Abramovich signings so he's not old Chelsea in that regards which is something that Terry is in other words he was coming through the youth system and he was establishing himself and had established himself just as they're taking over, as Abramovich takes over. So, in effect, he's the sort of a positive legacy of the sort of Bates era Chelsea, you know. But without the sort of some of the failures of, you know, maybe the sort of the Luca Vialli, where, you know, they never quite, they will always be sort of an outside favourite for the league and they'd never quite get there. They play some lovely stuff, but they just seem to lack that kind of. That edge that would take them into sort of winning or really competing with Ferguson, and he's and you know so Terry is an element of the sort of the Bates regeneration of Chelsea in the ground, but without actually having to specifically reference to Ken Bates because you know he's Ken Bates wasn't the person that you know scouted him and signed him from the youth thing, from the youth system. So he's you know Terry ends up being a sort of a. He basically arrives and he becomes then the sort of the leader and the birth of the Chelsea dynasty. You know, he links the various iterations of the Bramovich, so the first Mourinho, the you know, the hidden key, you know, the champions. You know, he links all of that in a way that, and you know, the, he's the one that stays. So you know, Drogba goes for a few years. You know, Zola retires just as you know, or retires from English football, then goes back to you know Sardinia to play. And he he's a link to that sort of Ron Harris. So in other words, like you know, lots of games for Chelsea. Only plays Chelsea, leads them to victories and all the rest of it. And so, essentially, what you have is that, and the people who are marginalised by the present success. So he's a link to that past. So, and you know, in effect, there is. 
there is, you know, and it, so you've got him as the, he arrives, and then the birth of Chelsea, and sort of the aesthetic warrior king on the field. It's got sort of Shakespearean overtones to it. Mm. And the way how I look at it is that, so his kind of, if you look at his, like, last game, in other words, if he was someone who was, you know, very understated, he could have retired. There's about a hundred different ways he could have retired. But, you know, for someone who's, you know, supposed to be, who's, I suppose, the principal's, ah, oh, well, he's a one-club man, defender, and a captain, is that the way how he ends his career is, it's a bit monarchical, isn't it? It's, you know, forcing the, the game to be stopped exactly when he wants it to be, you know, forcing the oppo, you know, to stop what they're doing and then you know, lead him off, you know, with a, you know, almost what a, a council took 21 player salute and all the rest of it. Whereby other people sort of, you know, and this is where I think that his lack of voice has, has one or two different things. In other words, if you basically stay at a football club for like an extended period of time, or you're a key figure in the history of that club, in some ways you become somewhat political. Not in terms of left or right, but in terms of how you conceive of something and the, sort of the, the narrative structure to it and where you put that club and that time and the world that it... the outside world. So if you think of someone like, you know, we've mentioned Gerard. You know, he comes back and, you know, he's a local lad, you know, takes the captaincy, plays in a way that, you know, Liverpool fans eat up. You know, he, he is, you know, up and down the pitch, leading the team from the front. You know, he's got, you know, throughout bits of his career, he's got, you know, other players, you know, like, who've, who've come come up through the Liverpool system. So you've got, you know, at the start of his career, Fowler and Owen. You know, for the vast majority of his career, you know, it's Jamie Carragher at the back as well. And they sort of create this sort of spine and a sort of symbiosis to an extent <clears throat> and because of his family history with his uncle being killed at Hillsborough he becomes a sort of a beacon in terms of Liverpool finally getting back to somewhere close to what they believe is their spiritual place and he, he by him playing by him being one of the, the most important players in world football not just English football you know, by one of the top 20 players in the world you know, during his sort of peak is a way of keeping the fight going and the flame going, you know, during the long years when, you know, things, you know, the, the fight for justice could have, you know, I'm going to want to be, you know, sort of sensitive and careful to, you know, when discussing this, but you know, he was able to, you know, just as by being there, he could, you know, he was able to keep it in the sort of, the news cycle in a way if they just, let's say, because yeah, around about the same time, Chelsea were had situations where they were playing with eleven foreign players. Where if that was the case, it you know there would have been that just that l slight that a sort of link in the chain as as it were. In other words, even if he'd never played for Liverpool, at all, that you know justice would have still been received. But you know it would have been just that much harder, and you know and that just works. And in some sense, I think to look at it in a way for a, a non one club person, Keegan is a classic example at Newcastle. So in other words, he just basically, you know, he's near the end of his football career, he knows he's no longer really a first division player. So he, he just goes down, comes back to this sort of spiritual homecoming to Newcastle. And just, you know, by sh almost sheer willpower and magnetic energy gets, you know, huge crowds into St James' Park, they get promoted. And 
you know, and then sort of you have the John Hall and Frank Shepard Day take over, and they're homemade, you know, sort of local millionaires, and they then rebuild the stadium, they pump in a lot of money, and just, it, you know, Keegan then moves into become, you know, becomes the manager, and it just, everything is supercharged, and it really goes from sort of, if you look at the, you know, and that sort of matches the renaissance of Newcastle as an area. It's becoming more self-confident. You know, they get the Newcastle Falcons, the rugby team. You then get, you know, Durham is now a county and then and an international ground. And it's that kind of the you know the centre of Newcastle is being regenerated, and it's now and it's self-confident. <coughs> it's now playing in Europe. It's now beating Barcelona, playing this very, you know, attacking very. You know, cavalier brand of football, and in the end, it's it, you know that they they basically see you know Keegan as a sort of messianical figure. It's, it's, so in the end, he he you know Kevin Keegan doesn't you know regenerate Newcastle, but he he ends up becoming a symbol, and the Newcastle football team become a symbol of that to an extent. In the same way that you know Gerald became a symbol, and you know the way how you know sort of dignified and how his you know his personality and the way how he you know captain Liverpool, uh, and you know the importance that that was to the fan base, and the, you know people's cons you know people's desires, and so he then leads them to you know the sort of the to the European Cup in the most dramatic sense. You know, he's the one who leads the team from 3-0 down against AC Milan and they get the European Cup and they're sort of, you know... And then if you look at someone like, you know, like Ledley King, you know, if you look at the way how he retires, it's very understated. They then have, you know, like a, a, a friend, you know, a testimonial, but it's a you know, Spurs young players, Spurs legends and a few of the first teamers. You know, and it's... It's very nice, and you know, part of the thing what he's done is that he's you know focused on his post career on sort of the youth team to an extent, and also the community, and because in effect, for Spurs it is you know somewhat complicated because you're dealing you know you've got the riots, and the fact is that it is you know the fans a lot of the fans come from outside of Tottenham into Tottenham watch and then sort of go home again, but you know he's positioned himself very much you know as someone who can use his name for you know to help the the you know the local area because he's from the, you know he's from that neck of the woods he's risen up through the team and his sort of role in the difference from sort of Kevin Keegan's you know messianical you know brand of just being you know because he, he's a messianical sort of personality type you know and Gerard's just you know way of becoming, you know, part of just Liverpool and and is sort of an exemplar, a personification of Liverpool and what Liverpool wanted to stand for in certain respects. And what Led the King almost says is is that, you know, he is part, you know, he ends up sacrificing his career where he could have gone on and if he'd, you know, if he'd left Spurs at his peak, he would have probably, if he'd gone to United or any, uh, you know, like, a, like Sol Campbell did. Oh, but Sol Campbell got the money and a load of trophies. And a load of international caps. You, know, you can't argue with that. But in the end, Spurs fans hate him for that, and you know the way how he did leave. But King doesn't do that. In other words, he stays. You know he toughs it out, even when it doesn't actually benefit him. 
and you know he ends up having this and there is an element in Spurs history of tragedy of you know John White being hit struck by lightning any number of you know you know when things were just getting right something goes horribly wrong and yet in the end his career arc ends up with actually you know by the time he he's retired Spurs are competing for the Champions League whereby when he starts they they've been mired in mid table for years and eventually it's almost as if his career is like actually you know and the relationship he has with the fans is almost like well we all toughed it out and in the end we got to the promise you know not quite the promised land but we got to the point where we're now competing when we leave and when they left White Hart Lane they were second when King King turned up they were probably 13th it's that kind of difference and you know the role that he plays in the you know community and all the rest of it and that's really where he's ended up basically the way how he follow you know his role post career has been one of you know Dignity. That doesn't mean he's the perfect person. You know, I mean, there have been plenty of times during the back end of his career when he was holed out of nightclubs, you know, completely blossomed. But in effect, he's become, you know, part of that, you know, Tottenham becoming more of a, you know, symbol in the area in terms of doing, spending more time on charity work than they ever did probably 10, 15 years ago. And the fact that they're staying in Tottenham instead of moving somewhere else, which might be, you know, more economically advantageous it's that kind of thing but what what terry actually ends up with it is completely the opposite in other words to conclude you know if you want to conclude why chelsea fans love it's it's, it's a monarchical argument ironically enough so you basically you like well by just symbolizing choreography which is basically what the royal family is in other words you know you have the queen's speech which is written by politicians you have her christmas message which can be not be political it, you know, it is, you know, pr- you wouldn't say it's the same every single year, but it's the same principles, it's the same argument. And really, what's happened is, is that, ask anyone why, you know, let's say if you think it's, let's say, 60-40 in favour of the monarchy, you ask that 60% of people, why do you like the monarchy? Some people say, oh, I love the glamour, I love the history, some people say, I love Princess Diana, some people say they love the Queen. You know, it, there'll be, you know, people that, you know, like you know are interested in that side of you know and the, the glitz and the glam any number of different reasons some people just might prefer it to having a president and you can understand the various but they're all personalized arguments because you don't know the royal family well enough you know you know all about them but you know you know about any number of scandals any books or anything else but you're it's always at a remove and it, they've always trying to push out an image which is what basically John Terry does. So in the end, the Chelsea fans have personally filled the vacuum with their own reasons for why they like him. In other words, you know, the end of his career, because his footballing career at Chelsea really ended probably, you know, know, months ago. I mean, this season, basically, he has been a combination of Bernard Lambord, Lambord, And Winston Bogart. I mean, basically, he's been paid this. You know, he's been you know as overpaid as Winston Bogart was in the last couple of years of his Chelsea team, and he's basically put up the numbers that Bernard Lambord did. Lambord would score a couple of goals a season, would have some ropey performances, would have a couple of good ones. It's that. It, it's not been actually important. He has not played a meaningful role at any point in you know the probably the, the most meaningful role he played was when he was sort of dropped. And then they've gone on and nearly you know, won the league and nearly won the double. You know, he's been sent off. 
you know, he you know, he had that horrible mistake after he scored against Watford. He's not been, you know, a meaningful player. So, yes, they are, you know, in a way saying goodbye, but they're also saying goodbye to the reasons why they loved him, which could be any number of different things that we've sort of discussed, which is really where the Republican argument gets in. Is So, in other words, the 40% who don't. And really, that's the sort of wider football fans. And you think, well, why don't they? Well, basically, there's nothing in it for them. He didn't win them a World Cup. He yeah, played okay for England, but not in a, a way that would be, you know, that would give you an excuse not to, you know, to basically ignore his, you know, various missteps. You know, there's, there's the scandals, the arrogance, the, the unapologetic wealth and privilege. You know, the, the disabled bay when he parks there just so that he can walk into the restaurant even though there's a car park around the corner. It's that, you know, it's that disdain for the masses. It's his disdain for not care. You know, it's, you know, unapologetic wealth and privilege. Well, that's what Chelsea really are in a respect. They are billionaire he's got made huge amounts of money in his career and you know it is that you know fetishization of protocol in other words you know when he dresses up you know in full kit so that when the photographs are taken of him with the european cup it looks like he's played you know there's any number of ways and means around that he didn't have to do that but for him the important thing was is that when he was going to hold the european cup even if he hadn't played in the final and wasn't part of a great Chelsea, you know, performance. And you could probably say that his role in the second half, you know, in, in the second leg, where he got sent off for just a ridiculously violent, stupid, you know, arrogant foul. You know, it was the arrogance of basically kneeing someone in the back and assuming the ref either wouldn't see or wouldn't have the nerve to send him off. So, in effect, he has become a king. And, you know, the, and he's really, you know, in effect... You know the the king of Stamford Bridge, and he's now that that era is closed. We're now really waiting to see what happens next with Chelsea. Is it you know because you, you know you've had you know, sort of you've had Mourinho, you know Mark One, probably rather than you, know, you wouldn't discuss Mark Two. But who's now going to replace that? You know, is it going to be Conte? It's an interesting one, but. To sort of finally conclude, you'd have to say that you're, there's never going to be another John Terry, and there are sad things about that, and there are good things about that, and in the end, you'd have to say that Chelsea will probably never quite be the same again. Thank you, and good night.